All right, so let's do this. Start by turning in, into the book of Mark, chapter 5. And while you're swiping or, or turning, swipe, you get my swiping, you know, digital, swipe, never mind, okay. All right, before we can get started, we need a review of what's already been going on prior to this. I'm, it's kind of sad when you get kind of dropped into the middle of a, a text, you're kind of going, but what's happening? Well, without the context, you're going to miss some pieces. Let me ask you this. So who is Mark? Now, I, again, I've had some people think, well, he's one of the apostles. Yeah, okay, that would be a good thought, but no, sorry, not accurate. And I had one person go, no, he was one of the apostles. I go, well, you might want to go back through and get the list, you know. And no, he's, sorry, he's not there. Actually, it's John Mark. Now, you and I have met John Mark previously. If you've ever done any work and studies in the book of Acts and you've done anything with the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, you did have John Mark involved in that first missionary journey. And in the middle of that, or somewhere early rather than towards the end of it, John Mark leaves. Kind of sets a bad tone. And he goes back home. Now, John Mark, keep the context up, John Mark, is Barnabas's cousin. So you've got a family kind of pressure and structure there. Now, when Barnabas wanted to add John Mark back in on the second missionary journey, now Steve did an excellent job when he taught this section. He wanted him to be added back in to the second missionary journey. The concept of the second missionary journey was the fact that Paul and Barnabas would start going back through the churches that they helped set up to see how they're growing to reaffirm and to grow them stronger. And Paul was vehemently opposed to John Mark being added. And it caused quite a little bit of a tiff between Barnabas and Paul. But that was a great thing because God used it to create two missionary teams to go out. It was a perfect thing. That was one of the things that Steve brought up. And it was perfect because now you've got two missionaries, not just one, two heading out. And the ministry was good. And later on, too, you start seeing that John Mark was definitely reaccepted by Paul, worked through whatever issues there were, and became part of Paul's ministry, and then later on part of Peter's ministry. But that's where we get the book of Mark. Because John Mark is codifying or writing down Peter's ministry. So what Peter taught is what we're getting here. Now, I'm pretty sure it's not the way it's done, but John Mark has a very specific focus, and all writers have specific focuses on what they're trying to do, or a theme. John Mark, and if you still got your digital or paper Bible, go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Keep your finger in five. Very simple statement. What is he going to present in this book? Very simple. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his theme. He's going to start with the beginning of the gospel as it moves out and continues to flow and the good news of the saving work of Jesus Christ to the lost. Interesting thing, he also put a capstone towards the end of the book to kind of reaffirm what we're doing. And, and it's kind of something that you just miss. But Mark denotes 
that a Roman centurion was used to identify that he was the Son of God. Go back into Mark 15.39. This is at the cross. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, and he said, now this is a Roman centurion, truly this man was the Son of God. He identifies it right there. And another thing that you're going to get, if you ever do a study in the book of Mark, and I do recommend it, and if you want to join us on Wednesday nights at Culver's, we're going through it, we're starting chapter 6, just join right in. On the other note that you get out of Mark's writing, he moves quickly. It's one of those kind of writers that you kind of, you got to keep going, and you got to go quickly as fast as he's going, because he's going to absolutely wear you out with one word. He loves the word immediately, and he's not joking, and that's exactly what he does. Give you an example. Mark 1, verses 12 through 14. Get this. To get the full force of this text, you've got to go to the other Gospels to understand what Mark is skimming over. Verse 12. Now this, this is the immediately that, we're, that you get out through the book. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's it? What are we missing? The temptation of Everything that happened in that wilderness, he goes, he was in the wilderness, ministered by, you know, tempted by Satan, ministered to by angels, Galilee. That's it. You just go, bing, straight, a couple of verses, you're all the way from the wilderness to Galilee, from the baptism to Galilee. That's Mark. He'll give it to where you're going, but he's not going to go deep. It's a fun, fun book to study because you're having to go through so many other texts to go, what, what, huh, what is he, and you fill it in. So we'll do a little bit of that this morning. But, again, how do we get where we are in chapter 5? Well, let's see. What's covered? Chapter 1, we have a prophecy fulfilled about John the Baptist and his ministry being the forerunner, coming out of Isaiah. We also have the baptism of Jesus, the temptation, the calling of his disciples. Disciples, okay? This is not the 12 yet. Heals a man with the unclean spirit and others, and also cleanse the leper, chapter 1. Chapter 2, heals the paralytic, confronted concerning the fasting and, and sabbatical, or the Sabbath, they were confronted. Why don't your disciples fast? Why don't you, you know, these kind of questions came up. Jesus has to teach them and answer them. Chapter 3, healed a man with a withered hand. Calling of the twelve, defines who are his mother and brothers? Remember that issue in, in the house when he was ministering and the, his mom and brothers were outside trying to get him out because they thought he was a nutcase? And literally they say, well, your mother and brothers are outside. And he goes, who are my brother and mothers? He answers that. Chapter 4, parable of the sower. Explains the use of parables. Parable of the seed, seed growing. Very unique. Parable of the mustard seed on top of the growing seed. And then at the end of four, what leads into five, 
calms the storm on the lake as the apostles were traveling from the western coast to the eastern coast. This shows the men the power that Jesus has over creation. It's amazing what these men are in a short period of time are going to start seeing and start experiencing. Chapter 5. We come to our text, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Well, what's that area? Well, it's near the city of Gerasa, and a Gentile area on the eastern shore, and Matthew refers to it. You're going to get two different words. He calls it the Gadarenes, the area town of Gadara, and Mark 8.28, we get a little bit more, and when he came to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, not Mark, Matthew, sorry, Hebert clarifies, this is one of my commentaries that I go through, and Hebert clarifies what's going on with these two different names. Some people will say, well, look, there's error. No, it's just depending on what you're trying to remember. Mark's got a specific target, a theme, and a people that he's expecting to read this. It's now generally accepted that the reading in Mark and Luke was the Gerasenes, while Matthew wrote the Gadarenes. The Gerasenes has been taken to refer to the import city of Gerasa, located 37 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Then, then the designation was used very loosely to connect the area with the one well-known city in the general area with which non-Palestinian, notice this, non-Jews, Gentiles, readers, would be familiar. Remember, his focal point is for a Gentile reader. More probably, the reference is to the small town called Kursa, or Gersa, located near the sea about midway on the eastern shore. There are, notice this, steep hills and cave tombs about a mile south of Kursa. Getting the idea what's happening? Going from the west, they have the huge storm. Guys are convinced they're going to die. Jesus is asleep in the boat. They're irritated. They're frustrated. He gets up, calms the wind, calms the sea. And there he asks the what big question. Who is it that the wind and the waves obey? This is the experience they're just having. Okay, Verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, there's that word, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Wow. As Mark would identify immediately Jesus encountered a demon-controlled man and the fact that he was banished to live in the tombs with the dead bodies amplifies the fact that he was definitely an outcast of society. He was pushed out. No matter what they did to control the madman, whether it be in chains or shackles, he overpowered them. The demonic strength was overpowering. Notice the interesting point here in the text. The statement says, no one could bind him anymore. Notice that the strength that he was acquiring and receiving was growing. So they may have at a time been able to restrain him, but now they couldn't. There's nothing they could do, and there was no one that could overpower him. No one had the strength to subdue this man. 
Add that into the fact of what's happening here. More for the man. Now, take a look. This is the man's life now. It's got no hope, and this is what his daily routine is. Night and day among the tombs, verse 5, on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Notice, what is Satan's goal along with the demons? What's their goal? Destroy the image bearers. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. This man was being tortured from within and cutting himself on the outside. Keep this thought in mind because that's going to be a major point as we progress. Now he encounters Jesus. Verse 6, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torture me. That's the demon. Note the demons don't need to be told who Jesus is. Notice that. That's huge. They know him. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one? Oh, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Just to know that God is a sovereign triune God is not enough for salvation. Just having the head knowledge is not enough. These men have the head knowledge. They, know, they can identify him absolutely who he is. But at least they have the, the right response. They shudder. You know, repentance of the demons, there's no option for them nor Satan. There is no repentance. But they know who he is. They also know who Jesus is and shudder and tremble, but don't forget, they think they're in charge. They think they have the power over. Now Jesus has the power and authority over Satan and the demons. We move through verse 8, see a bigger picture of what's happening here. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion. For we are many. Don't let that go past you. There's no reason for Jesus to even know the name. He knows the name. That's not the point. He already knows the name, and he knows what's going on with this man. But we're also talking about a demon group that, that's somewhere up around 60,000. I mean, I, I don't even get that. I mean, how do you get 60,000? Don't worry. They have no problem with that. Notice what they say. We are legion, for we are many. That's kind of a statement that most commentators kind of think. They're trying to put a little bit of pressure on. Maybe they can kind of scare Jesus off and go, well, don't mess with us because we're a lot bigger than you are. Does that deter Jesus? Not one single bit. Doesn't deter the Son of the Most High God, for he is God incarnate. The demon knows that Jesus can banish them to the pit forever. The work of demons, again, is to destroy the image bearers. As they were torturing this man, that's all they want to do is to kill and destroy. So they plead with Jesus to let them stay, to do what? Continue to do the work of destruction. Verse 10, And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Now, Mark's reference of out of the country 
matches Luke's account but gives a little bit more of a broad information where in Luke 8.31 he states, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Notice clearly that even the demons can do nothing unless God wills. They begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. It's his authority that will or will not allow them to do this. Now take a step back for a minute, just with that in your mind. You can notice three elements in this event that declares things to be unclean. Consider where Jesus is right now. Not a place that you would find an everyday Jew. Ever. This, I mean, this place just reeks unclean. First, they're in a Gentile area and a place that you would never find a Jew. Even the touch of a Gentile would make them unclean. Second, tombs and death. To touch a dead body would make a Jew unclean. And finally, third, pigs. The forbidden meat that could not be consumed under the law. Jesus is right in the middle of this as he came to seek and save sinners, and in this case, the man. Now the destruction of the herd. Verse 13, so he gave them permission... And the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about, notice the number, 2,000, okay? Rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Remember that we talked about the work of the demons to destroy the image bearers of God? Notice again, you're getting another picture. This is the only thing that they have the intent to do. They get into pigs, what, to just roam around, rummage food? No. To destroy. Demons have no desire to sit and set up shop and be friends with anybody. Their desire is to destroy. The evidence is the pigs. Anybody who has been around this man who's been possessed by legion that they couldn't subdue, outcast him out, and then he gets healed and you lose the whole herd. Look at the destruction. A herd of 2,000 destroyed by demons. <laughs> Never think for a moment the demons were, were out there just to kind of do whatever, that they would themselves be destroyed when the pigs were drowned and destroyed. No. That was just the evidence of what they do. But don't worry. They went on to continue to, what? Attack more image bearers. Luke eleven twenty four through 26 is clear that when the unclean spirit, and I love this, this is a, an interesting picture because it's something that I used to say that when, when, whether I was in student ministries or college or whatever, whenever you confess your sins, what do you do? Get in the Word. I kind of picture it like you're confessing your sin, you're kind of getting the gunk out and get in the Word to get the Word of God in to take the exact place and to fill that void. Don't let anything else fill that void but the Word of God. Jesus brings up a same kind of scenario in Luke eleven twenty four 24-26. He says, For when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept, put in order. Hmm, notice, but not what? 
filled. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Good comment, good statement. So what is the reaction of this community now that the pigs are gone? You know, your uh, revenue just went over the cliff. So what's the community's response? Now, in your mind, you'd think, well, they're going to think, this is great. Let's, we need Jesus. We need him here. Stay here. We need this ministry. Mm, not necessarily. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled, told it in the city and the country. This thing's gone broadcast. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. Now notice this. This is a contrast picture. The one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. What? That just stops you and go, what? Why? This is the best moment of your life. Nope. A miraculous event has occurred in their midst that a man possessed they could no longer restrain is now calm, clothed, and in his right mind, and you're afraid. What? Of what? Look at what they asked Jesus to do. Leave. Go away. At this point, you and others may be doing the exact same thing in your lives. You know the mighty power of God and the salvation of Jesus, but you hit a point that the requirements of God are just too strong and you want to do it your own way anyway. This community, though they saw the power of God, chose to ask Jesus to leave. They were comfortable with the demon-possessed man, but it went too far when it came to Jesus. Now how many times do you know what God requires of your life and yet you deny his authority and choose to do it your way. In a very real sense, you're asking Jesus to leave for you wanted to do it your way. And I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. If you're a true believer, I ask you this, question yourself further. A true believer is one who desires to obey God and keep his commandments. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And John, in his black and white letter, great letter, 1 John 2, 3 through 6, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever say, oh, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, 
In him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever said he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Isn't that what Joe just said this morning? It's putting the word into practice. Not sitting there saying, no, I don't like what you want, Jesus. Let me, let me pick and choose. I'm, I've got the menu of my Christian life. And no, I don't want these. I'll do, I'll do it my way. That's, no, Christianity is not on a menu. So Jesus leaves. That to me is the saddest part of this whole event. But not necessarily. As he was getting in the boat, verse 18... The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. I, I agree. That's the same thing I would do. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Think through the timing of this event. I mean, just, just hold the whole picture. They had just landed after being in a severe storm that Jesus calmed, then faced with a madman, and then they're now leaving again. I mean, this is, this is one of those bounce-over type, you know, roll over and roll back, same day. That's what's happening. Is it strange? Nah. Jesus came for the specific ministry to this man who would carry the saving message of Jesus to the Gentiles. Oh, it was planned. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. I can understand why the man wanted to be with Jesus. That's what we want to be. He was healed by Jesus, and he wants to be with Jesus. Peter summed it up in John 6, 68 and 69. It should be our same statement. Simon Peter Answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where would we go? Nowhere. Here, with you. But it is better for the man to stay in his own area and proclaim Jesus, what Jesus had done. The message of Christ goes now out to the Gentiles. The area declared as Decapolis refers to the 10-city area that makes up the region. So you talk about a huge evangelistic connecting hub. You know what? Yes, it's good to be with Jesus, and yet it is good to go for Jesus and proclaim the message of salvation. Hebert notes it this way. is The man would be spreading the message in an area where Jesus would not himself be working. The publicity would not hinder his ministry in Galilee. The order left behind a message of his grace in a place where Jesus had been asked to leave. Is that message leaving? No, the message is staying and going. So why would anybody marvel? That was always kind of a weird thought in my mind as they marveled, you know, stand back and go, ooh, you know, hearing his testimony. You know, evidence of saving work of Jesus is right before them proclaiming the truth. 
And at the same time, it may not have brought saving faith to those hearers. Sometimes you see the message of the gospel going out and all you get is amazement, but no movement. Nothing changes. Let me ask about you. Do you know a lot about God and the work of Jesus, yet have not moved all the way to true saving faith? I mean, do you have a lot of verses in your machinery and that's it? Like Joe was kind of saying again, I mean, you might have a lot of knowledge, but if it doesn't go through and change, again, it's one of those questions I've stopped asking people is, you know, hey, you know, what are you getting out of the Word? Or you've been reading the Word lately? And you know, I could do the same thing, and I did. Oh, yeah, yeah, reading Isaiah. It's great, great, everything. Deep prophecy and everything. I haven't been in Isaiah in months. What are you talking about? What am I doing? I'm putting a front line up and making it look like I'm so spiritual. Because I can do that game. I changed the question now. Because you've been in the Word this week, what's changing in your life? You know what? You can't be in the Word and not be changed. May not be big change, might be a little raisin change, little fruit. But there is change because the word impacts if you allow it to go in and change. So check your heart. Do you strongly desire to know and obey God? Or do you seek the things of God up to the point where you have to surrender your will to His? You know, there's a danger in external conformity. I've seen it my whole life. I've done it my whole life, too. I mean, it's, there was all kinds of things I did just to kind of make it look good like I was this good, powerful Christian, you know, and it was, it's easy to do. You can get really into it. Wayne Grudem, because I'm getting ready to teach summer camp one segment. Wow. This is in a systematic theology dealing with sin or the study of harmardiology. He quotes this. He said, While a genuine Christian who sins does not lose his or her justification or adoption before God, there needs to be a clear warning that mere association with an evangelical church and outward conformity to accepted Christian patterns of behavior does not guarantee salvation. Hmm. Particularly in the societies and cultures where it is easy or even expected for people to profess to be Christians, there's a real possibility that some will associate with the church who are not generally born again. I saw this a lot. If such people then become more and more disobedient to Christ in their pattern of life, they should not be pulled into compliance by assurances that they still have justification or adoption in God's family. Careful when you over-encourage somebody. A consistent pattern of disobedience to Christ coupled with a lack of the elements of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, and so forth, is a warning sign that the person is probably not a true Christian inwardly, that there probably has been no genuine heart faith from the beginning and no regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So it makes you kind of wonder, why in the world would Paul in 2 Corinthians at the end ask the church, examine yourself to see whether or not you be in the faith? 
He's not outside to the street. He's in the church asking that hard question. We need to ask that question periodically. Are the evidences of the fruit of the Holy Spirit present in your life? Can others around you see that evidence? Now, you're going to probably have some fruit that's kind of mangled, right? How's your uh, joy? Well, it can get mangled. But who do you seek joy from? External sources? Money? Possessions? No. How about this one? I'd die on this one. Patience. Y'all like that one? Y'all got that one? That one's not shriveled up and rabbled, torn or anything. That's good fruit, right? Yes, it's good fruit, but most of us got it mangled, right? But the pursuit to fruit. Again, Rick Holland trained us up really well in student ministries. Careful, too, that just because someone might have a little weizen, you know, the little up weizen, you know, does not mean there's no fruit. That's fruit. And help them to grow beyond that. Same thing with yourself. Are you in the Word daily? Do you know how to study the Word? Don't be prideful and say, oh, I've really never gotten into a detail how-to. Well, get with somebody. Let's do it together. I've got guys on Wednesday night, we get together and we're going through the book of Mark. Believe it or not, that's what I'm... This is the chapter we just got done. And it's intense when you're together studying because somebody else might pop up something that you just kind of glossed over and you go, whoa, 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 what about this? Oh, oh. So study together with somebody. Ask questions. You hit a point, you go, I have no clue what this is going on. Call somebody, call one of the elders. We're fine. I love those kind of questions. Why? It makes me have to think too. I grow every single time someone asks me a question. It makes me go deeper, okay? Why do we spur others to do good deeds? That's how you do it. You get into each other's lives. What did we learn from this guy? We learned a lot. One, Satan has no power over us. Can he mess up our life? Does he want to mess up our life? Yes. That's why you stay with Jesus. You go with Jesus. Because you have Jesus, what do you also do? You go and share Jesus. Yes, this guy would love to have been with Jesus 24-7. Would have liked to have been the 13th apostle. But Jesus said, no. You go to what? Your home, family, and friends. Why? And proclaim. That's all you need to do. Just proclaim what Jesus has done in your life. You don't have to get technical. The work of the Holy Spirit will do the saving work. That's not your job. You proclaim. And the biggest thing about it, just watching it, is just, again, sad part, but Jesus came specifically saving this man for the word to get out. I love it. And it's, to me, it's like something's not dead. It's just amazing to watch this whole scene. Again, get in the word this week, enjoy it. Have the fun of your life in it. I mean, get, I, I always get excited when I'm in the Word because there's just so much. I mean, some of well, you, you studied this before. Yeah, but it's bigger now. So, stay in the Word, folks. Let's pray. Father, you have absolutely no issue 
over demons and Satan because I know they try to make us think that they are superpower and they can actually do anything and everything, but they cannot. They have to ask. You may or may not grant them anything. But the most important thing for us is that we stay faithful, stay in your word, stay growing, stay connected to the body of believers, and, and just trust you to get us through to the next day. I love the fact that you just say, don't worry about tomorrow. Got enough going on with today, and tomorrow's going to have its own issues, but they're not, they're not relevant at this point. God, help us to be mindful of the fact that you are the God of today and that you will guide us through in each and every moment that we live in, in the day. God, direct our paths. Teach us to be humble. And give us the excitement. If we've not been in the Word with, with joy and excitement, help us to have that joy return back to us to be in the Word daily, seeking and growing to know you more. We love you, and again, just so thankful that you do care for us and you love us deeply. In Jesus, amen.